0: Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we continue our investigation into the von Bülow's Sonny and Klaus, making it into our journey to that terrible night in December of 1980 where Sonny will go into her irreversible coma brought about by her estranged husband, Klaus von Bülow. We conclude this episode at the end of the first trial and its aftermath. In between, we have a medical event, a suspicious family, a clever cop, two indictments, and a trial, and an appeal to Let's Investigate. We know by the fall of 1980, things are rough for Sonny and Klaus. They are looking at divorce, but want to come together for that last family holiday in December of 1980 at Clarendon Court. On these two days, December 20th and 21st, there are events, contested and debated over the course of two subsequent trials, but these events will lead to the permanent coma, for Martha Sharp Crawford, Sonny, she will never regain consciousness after December 21st, 1980. The day before December 20th, Sonny is having difficulty walking up the stairs at her Newport home. Her son, Alexander, brings his mother to bed, and after he has helped made her comfortable, Alexander looks around for sleeping pills, or anything else perhaps to explain his mother's exhaustion and her confusion. Alex finds nothing, he'll tuck his mother in, chalking it up to pre-holiday exhaustion, and off he goes. The following morning, Sunny is found face down on the bathroom floor, with blood in and on her mouth. Her nightgown is twisted up around her body. There is not another blood stain in the bathroom to account for her injuries. The bathroom windows are wide open on a very chilly Newport December day, leaving Sunny's body temperature at 81 degrees Fahrenheit. Sunny's pulse is 35 beats per minute. Sunny is rushed to the hospital, and Klaus just sits there at the hospital described this particular day as cold and unfeeling. This is not Sunny's first coma, and the same symptoms of the previous year are exhibiting low blood sugar levels, high levels of insulin, insulin that was not generated by her own body. We have seen this film before, and we did not like the ending. Sunny is now in an irreversible coma, and moved into the Harkness Pavilion at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York City. In his coverage in 1985 from Fatal Charm writes about Sunny, She is not, as many believe, on a life support system, nor is she the total vegetable she is often described as being. I was told that the yearly cost of maintaining her is considerably in excess of half a million dollars. Her $725-a-day room is guarded around the clock by a special security force, and private nurses and a maid look after her at all times. A maze of curtained screens further protects her from the remote possibility that an outsider should gain entry to her room. A current photograph of the comatose woman would be worth a fortune. Dr. Richard Stock who has been her physician for 29 years, as he was her mother's and grandmother's, visits her several times a week. She is fed through a tube in her nose. She receives physical therapy and dental care, and her hair is washed and set twice a week. Her own skin creams are used on her hands and face. She wears her own nightgowns and bed jackets, and sleeps on porthalt sheets. Music plays in the room, and there are always highly scented flowers on her bedside table. Allah and Alexander visit her regularly. Sometimes Alla brings her two-year-old daughter, also called Sunny, so that her mother can know she has a grandchild. They talk to her, they touch her, they tell her about things. In a bizarre twist of fate, their father, Prince Alfie von Ausberg, is also in an irreversible coma in Salzburg, the result of an automobile accident two years ago when he was driving with Alexander. Their father's sister, Princess Hetty von Ausberg von Bolen, the wife of Arndt von Bolen und Halbach, the Krupp's munitions heir, has found a healer in Europe who specializes in comas she plans to bring the healer to New York to minister to her former sister-in-law. There are those who say that when Alfie von Ausberg and Sonny von Bulow stood side by side in the receiving line at their daughter's marriage to Franz Knessel, he asked her to divorce Klaus von Bulow and remarry him. Maria Schralheimer, the German maid so devoted to her mistress, that she refused to divulge to two sets of defense attorneys the fact that Sonny Von Bulow had had a facelift because she had promised her she would never tell also visits regularly, as does Morris Gurley, the chemical bank trust officer for Sonny's estate. Old friends are occasionally admitted, and one of them told me, she has a personality just like you or I do. She reacts differently to different people. Some days you have a termagant on your hands. You try to brush her hair and you'll have hell to pay. Other times, if the shades aren't open, she still looks beautiful in the half-light, although her hair has gone completely gray. Cosima von Bülow has not been to the hospital since December 1981, nor has Klaus von Bülow. That is done writing about Sunny's life between the night of her coma and Dunn's reporting in on Klaus's second trial in 1985. What you just heard has been Sonny's existence for five years. I never want to lose Sonny in this story, although our cast of characters is about to expand. So from December 1980, what's going on with Klaus von Bülow? Within a month after Sonny's coma, Klaus is vacationing with Alexander Isles. Alla and Alexander and Maria, too, are convinced that Klaus is to blame for Sonny's coma, and the more they watch Klaus, the odder he behaves. But the kids and Maria, they will keep Sonny's reputation at all costs. There is, after all, the family name to protect. One does not just bally about accusations of attempted murder unless one has proof. Sonny's children, Ala and Alex, bring their questions to the former district attorney of Manhattan, who agrees that perhaps some investigating does need to happen. It all sounds suspicious. The family will hire a private investigator who really gets things going, who will, on his visit to Clarendon Court with the kids, will find the locked box in Klaus's closet, which is also locked, and that's really no problem as they bring a locksmith with them. This is early 1981. No one is filming this or taking pictures of this discovery. And here we are finding this infamous black bag belonging to Klaus von Bülow, which inside all kinds of drugs are discovered. Barbiturates, morphine, assorted other drugs, as well as insulin, and used needles. Alas, there is no chain of evidence to support these findings. The private investigator and Alexander take the black bag to their lawyer, who will send that bag and its contents out to be tested. Only to have insulin found within those used needle tips And there are at least conversations happening at this point. It is at this point and only at this point that the authorities are called into the case. And whoa, do the authorities have things to say. The detective that is assigned to the case, after being astonished by all the chain of evidence destruction, will go and do some research. He interviews the kids he interviews Maria. He interviews Sonny's mother. He interviews her friends. He takes a look at the photographs that were taken the morning Sonny was found and the 1980 case file. The detective takes a look at the report from the previous December 1979. He takes a look at Sonny's medical records in between her two comas. And when the clever cop thinks he has enough to make his move He's going to spring a little surprise visit to Klaus von Bülow at the New York City apartment. His questioning is friendly. It's nice and gentle. Nothing accusatory, just enough to make an introduction and just clear up a few questions. Easy peasy like. As our clever cop is leaving, he will ask Klaus von Bülow, you know, just one more thing. Would your wife have had any reason to be using insulin? Klaus von Bülow responds, By God, that is the last thing she would need. And friends, the trap is set. The cops have a tale on Klaus von Bülow, who they are pretty certain will be coming back to Newport, Rhode Island and Clarendon Court fairly quickly. And sure enough, three days later, Klaus arrives back at their Newport home. But alas, as soon as Klaus von Bülow is in the home with enough time to find what he needs, our detective shows up with a search warrant and some cop friends who are going to do a little searching with the main detective and Klaus von Bülow talking downstairs. The search team does find the mystery closet unlocked, There is the lockbox where the infamous black bag was kept. There is also a note on the desk that reads, Black Box. (laughs) Klaus von Bülow will excuse himself during the questioning, and when the cops come back to this room, the note is gone and the closet is locked again. Klaus von Bülow is one shady cat. Trompolet deceives the eye. It is all suspicious. It is so suspicious. Everybody knows that Klaus von Bülow's guilty. Taking the evidence collected, Rhode Island does put together a case. Klaus von Bülow was indicted on two counts of attempted murder in July of 1981. Klaus von Bülow pleads not guilty, and there is a whole lot of buildup to this first trial. All of its details, are not only rocking high society, but the general public at large. Let's take a quick break here and come back for a bit of that build-up as we make our way into the first trial of Klaus von Bülow. The first trial of Klaus von Bülow began in Newport, Rhode Island on January 11, 1982, and will end March sixteenth of that same year. The day before the trial is to begin. This is hot news in the New York Times. Coverage here does make Section 1, page 22, with the headline reading, Von Bülow trial to open tomorrow focuses on Newport summer colony. But investigators, this is not the summer colony of Sonny and Klaus Von Bülow. Not in January, anyway. This particular article from the New York Times is by Dudley Clenenden, and I think it very much sets the stage for everything about to happen. Again, from the New York Times on the eve of the first trial of Klaus von Bülow. Uncharacteristically for him, Klaus von Bülow is spending the winter season here in Newport, which is gray and blowing cold this time of year. Usually, he and his wife The former, Martha Sharp Crawford, have come here in the warm months, closing up their large apartment on Fifth Avenue in New York to pass the summer at their estate, Clarendon Court, as members of Newport's fabled summer colony. But Mrs. Von Bulow is now in Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York in a coma that began the night of December 20th, 1980, while she was visiting Clarendon Court. And, as a consequence, Mr. Von Bulow and his attorneys must be in Superior Court here at 9.30 a.m. Monday to begin the selection of a jury that will try him on charges of attempting to murder her. As a local scandal, says Wilbur T. Holmes, the retired Navy captain who directs the Newport Historical Society, the case may not have had an equal in this century, since an English friend of James Gordon Bennett, the New York newspaper publisher, rode his horse up on the front steps and into the reading room, Newport's oldest private men's club, where Mr. Bennett was a member then, as Mr. Von Bulow is today. Doctors have said that Mrs. Von Bulow, a 50-year-old heiress to a Pittsburgh utilities fortune, will not recover. If her condition were not closely monitored, she would die. But she lives on. And last July, a Newport County grand jury indicted Mr. Von Bulow, 55, on two counts of attempted murder. One count for her present illness, which began in December 1980, and one count for the previous December, when she also fell unconscious, but was revived by emergency measures at a hospital here the selection of the jurors, the arguments about admission of the circumstantial evidence and the trial itself, if the evidence is admitted, are expected by attorneys for both sides to take six weeks or more. So Mr. Von Bulow could be here most of the winter. He is said that he is not guilty and that he loves his wife, whom he contends was an abuser of alcohol and drugs. He is still master of Clarendon Court, a stone mansion modeled after an 18th-century English manor house, and set on a lawn of ten acres between Bellevue Avenue and Rhode Island Sound. But the mansion is closed, and Mr. Von Bulow has taken up residence in the same motel where his two attorneys have filled a suite overlooking the harbor with file cabinets and long bar tables serving as desks. Mrs. Von Bulow is the daughter of George W. Crawford, chairman of the board of the Columbia Gas and Electric Corporation of Pittsburgh, who died when she was three years old. The value of her holdings has been estimated from $30 million to $35 million. Mr. Von Bulow, a tall, austere Dane with military bearing, holds a degree from Trinity College, Cambridge, and was a barrister of the Middle Temple, one of the inns of court in London. He was an assistant to J. Paul Getty, the oil billionaire, before he married Mrs. von Bülow in June 1966, after she divorced her first husband, Prince Alfie von Ausberg of Austria. They are privileged people. When the county grand jury indicted Mr. Vambulo on charges that he had injected his wife with insulin in an attempt to murder her, Mr. Vambulo hired John F. Sheenan, a Providence trial lawyer familiar with the court system here, telling him, Mr. Sheehan says, that he had been recommended by Senator Claiborne Pell, a Rhode Island Democrat who also has a home in Newport summer colony. As the Von Bulos are familiar with Senator Pell, so is Mr. Sheehan familiar with the prosecutor, Assistant Attorney General Stephen Flamiglietti. Mr. Sheehan and Mr. Flamiglietti have opposed each other in previous criminal cases, but they both say they have never had a high society case like the Von Bulow trial. The evidence to be offered against Mr. Von Bulow Includes a black bag of hypodermic needles and barbiturates, a statement that Mr. von Bulow made to state police before he obtained a lawyer, a statement from a New York City prostitute who said Mr. von Bulow had been her client about six times a year, statements and letters from Mrs. von Bulow's maid to the effect that Mr. von Bulow resisted seeking medical help for his wife and that the couple was considering a divorce, and records showing that he had vacationed in Florida and Nassau with a 35-year-old New York woman, Alexandra Isles. As the prosecution began preparing its case, Mr. Sheehan recommended to Mr. Von Bulow that he hire a New York lawyer, Harold Price Faringer of New York City as co-counsel. It is in Mr. Farringer's well-manicured hands that the direction of the defense rests. Mr. Farringer, who has a smooth voice, marble white hair, and a certain vanity—I never give my age, he said smiling—rivals Mr. Von Bulow in the elegance of his appearance. Mr. Farringer, an expert in constitutional and obscenity law, has built a reputation defending a variety of indicted politicians, disbarred lawyers, accused wholesalers of obscene films, and reputed mafia figures. It may be the first time the lawyer said that Mr. Von Bulow has found himself, figuratively speaking, in such company. It is also a record of representation at odds with the conservative nature of Newport's year-round population, which is largely Roman Catholic and Irish, and is the constituency from which the jury lists are drawn. Mr. von Bulow will not be tried by his peers, the members of Newport's summer colony, because they are almost all gone at this time of year. Their permanent homes are elsewhere, and their names do not appear on jury lists. In selecting a jury drawn from the local people, Mr. Farringer brings two important credentials to this case. He has written and lectured widely on the art of jury selection, and he handled the unsuccessful appeal for Gene Harris, who was convicted of manslaughter last year in the killing of Dr. Herman Tarnower, the Scarsdale diet doctor. Thus, Mr. Vambulo, whose trial could grow into the sensation that the Harris trial became, may also profit by the mistakes made in the selection of her jury and the conduct of her defense, mistakes noted in a rare criticism made by the appellate court recently when it turned down her appeal. From Palm Beach, New York, Europe, or wherever they are now, members of Newport's summer colony will watch for news of the trial as it progresses. I think you have to pay attention to it because I think it's a great tragedy and I think it's going to be with us for years to come, said Jane Hoving of the Tiffany family in New York. I'm sorry it had to happen in Newport. It's such a darling small place, a family kind of town. Sure it is. I mean, it is, but... This trial is going to be like nothing Newport has ever seen so far in its storied and scandalous history. This tiny town is about to be much examined in a way that it does not much prefer. Let's take another moment here for a break and come back for how that whole first trial shakes down. Oh, investigators, January 1982, chaos descends upon Newport, Rhode Island. The press there in droves. This trial is a media sensation. This is the first trial televised, gavel to gavel, which gives the public at large all of the dirty details of the proceedings. Sonny's children, Ala and Alex, her devoted maid Maria, her mother Annie Laurie Aitken, and her stepfather Russell Aitken as well, all firmly lined up against Klaus von Bulow. The only one standing with Klaus is the daughter he shares with Sonny, Cosima. Cosima is Klaus's most ardent supporter, and the family has laid out the battlefield. They do it now before this first trial, and that battlefield remains in place for a very long time. Hold on to that one. The case against Klaus, to be fair, is not an easy one. The prosecution definitely has some challenges. There are all kinds of issues with evidence. No one actually witnesses Klaus commit the crime. There's a lot of suspicion. No chain of custody with the supporting evidence. All the medical stuff, at least in 1981, can be confusing for a jury. It's a case based on many threads coming together to prove Klaus's guilt. The one thing the prosecution isn't lacking is motive. They argue that Klaus's primary motive for the crime was money. He stands to gain a whole lot more dollars as well as property if he is the widower of Sonny von Bülow, not her ex-husband. Less of a motive, but still in play for the prosecution, is Klaus's affair with Alexandra Isles. Klaus's mistress now for a number of years, who had given her ultimatum, tired of being in the push and pull of her lover Klaus. On the other side of the courtroom, the defense, for its part, will do what defense teams are known to do, paint the victim as the problem. They are not kind to Sonny in presenting their defense for Klaus von Bülow, They argue that she was an addicted woman, a vain woman, a petty woman, that she, in fact, Sonny did, took insulin on her own to lose weight and overdosed herself. The defense argues that the family against Klaus is simply against Klaus because of greed. They would like all of Sonny's money instead and refuse to acquiesce the fortune. The jury for this first trial is selected within January 1982, and again, they are not composed of Klaus's peers. These are working class folks. They aren't too much fooled by Klaus von Bülow. His first trial does begin February 1st, 1982, where he is being tried on two counts of attempted murder by insulin injection. Klaus For his part in this first trial, very different than how he is in the second one, in this first trial, Klaus is stiff. He's awkward. He's austere. He comes across a little weird to everyone. He does this weird neck pull thing. It's a really odd nonverbal trait. Klaus will later claim that his awkward demeanor was simply because of the sheer amount of press attention. This was not a thing that he was used to happening in the circles he moved in. Of course, it would be awkward. Sonny's son, Alexander, does testify. It's sordid. Everyone knows about the mistress, Alexander Isles. The devoted maid, Maria Schralhammer testifies about what she has seen over the years taking care of her mistress, Sonny. The black bag is introduced into evidence, the syringe, the coma from the year before Sonny's doctor over her lifetime testifies, and then the coup de gras, for the state of Rhode Island now presenting Alexandra Isles, the lady in question at the heart of Klaus's diabolical scheme. And friends, it is a brave thing for Alexandra to come and testify. It is brave for anyone to give testimony in a trial of this magnitude, but most especially for a gal of her background, her pedigree. I can imagine being here in this first trial is the very last thing Alexandra or her family wants her to be slung up in. But Alexandra does appear. She now, within the first trial in 1982, doubts her lover, which at the time of Sonny's second coma, she did believe in. Here in this first trial, Alexandra is questioned about why she would continue to see Klaus von Bülow after he had been indicted the previous summer. Alexander Isles said she just thought it was a pack of nonsense. She really does believe in Klaus at that time. There's a follow-up question from the attorney who asks Alexander Isles, do you still think it's a pack of nonsense? I don't know, she answers. And it's this next thing that the prosecutor asks that is probably the most memorable moment of the first trial. You can tell Alexandra Isles is affected by all of this. The prosecutor asks her one last question. Maybe you can't answer. Do you still love the defendant? And here Alexandra Isles does a dramatic pause. Her eyes look downward and very, very softly. She says, I don't know. The defense team will not cross-examine Alexandra Isles. They will, however, present their case, claiming again Sonny is mentally unwell. She did it to herself. The defense protests the chain of evidence. They say without that chain of evidence, there's no way to claim where the black bag and the locked box was, and by now far too many hands have touched the evidence. Certainly everything must be contaminated. There's nothing to see here. Both sides present final arguments, and the outcome of this first trial, Klaus von Bülow is found guilty by a jury of regular folks sentenced to 30 years. In the courtroom, Klaus does not react to this verdict. And that, investigators, should be the end of this story. Justice was served... And Klaus von Bülow dies a lonely man in prison for his multiple crimes. But that is not what happened, unfortunately. Klaus von Bülow does get released on a million dollars bail after this double conviction for attempted murder. And Klaus is looking to make an appeal for his case. Klaus is definitely going to need a better lawyer. He will find one in Alan Dershowitz. It does take a little cash to afford a better lawyer like Alan Dershowitz, who will manage to get the conviction of Klaus von Bülow reversed on appeal in 1984 on the grounds of failing to forward evidence, as well as the improper acquisition of evidence. And the second trial is where our man Nick really comes into the scene. I'm setting the trap here for our next episode This is from Dominic Dunn in Fatal Charm about what is coming. A rich person on trial is very different from an ordinary person on trial. The powerful defense team assembled by Von Bulow for the second trial so outshone the prosecution that the trial often seemed like a football game between the New York Jets and Providence High. Outsiders versed in legal costs, estimated that the second trial alone cost von Bülow somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars. Besides Thomas Puccio and Alan Dershowitz, the Harvard law professor who won the appeal, four other lawyers, two of them from New York, attended the trial daily. Von Bülow even hired his own court stenographer because the court-appointed one could not turn out transcripts fast enough to suit the defense. That cost alone, combined with printing, binding, and messenger fees, was probably close to $1,500 a day. Where the money for this extravagant operation came from was anyone's guess. Von Bulow's personal income is $120,000 a year, the interest on a $2 million trust Sonny von Bulow donated to the Metropolitan Opera with the stipulation that the income should go to von Bulow for life. Some said he sold art objects. Others said he had a loan of $900,000 from the Getty Oil Company. Still others said Mrs. Reynolds controlled the backers who provided the money. Who is this? Mrs. Reynolds that perhaps controls the backers that provide the money for Klaus von Bülow's second trial. The answer to that question and so much more on the next episode of Done and Done, which is available right now early and ad-free over at patreon.com slash done. Our Patreon folks are getting that episode way early before it drops on Thursday here on the main feed. Little holiday bonus for everyone. As always, tremendous thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. Y'all are an amazing community, and I really, really appreciate you on this journey. I appreciate you on this journey. Thank you for spending your time with me today, for telling your friends about Done & Done, your kind emails, your ratings, your reviews, too. So grateful to all of you investigators. Until we meet again to answer the who is Mrs. Reynolds question, I want you to stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Dun & Dun Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at dunnanddun at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.dunnanddun.com. Com. See you next week, friends.